from WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for joining us. On today's show, we're talking about adverse childhood experiences. It's a theory that tries to understand a whole range of stress reactions, including maladaptive behavior, even violent misbehavior, and trace them back to unresolved childhood trauma. Now, this is not a new idea, as anyone who's seen West Side Story knows. Dear kindly Sergeant Krupke, you gotta understand, it's just our bringing up key that gets us out of hand. Our mothers all are junkies, our fathers all are drunks. Golly Moses, naturally we're punks. G. Officer Krupke, we're very upset. Okay, now G. Officer Krupke is a comedy number. And in some ways, the lyrics by Stephen Sondheim are poking fun at the idea that a bad childhood inexorably leads to a life of crime. In the scene, basically, the members of the Jets gang are flaunting their lack of accountability to law enforcement. But there is something there that's not totally ironic. Even in 1957, 40 years before the CDC started seriously looking at how adverse childhood experiences impacted people's lives. These days, people working in education, criminal justice, and other fields give ACEs a lot more credence. But it's fair to say the same tensions still exist, and there's still pushback against the theory, with questions like, does a bad childhood let a violent offender off the hook? Or does trauma in early life doom a child to poor performance in school and for the rest of their lives? The short answer to questions like this is no. But it's complicated. ACEs is not a theory about psychological determinism. It is about the neurological science of how the brain works, and it is about building empathy into systems that still have to hold people accountable. And it's worth pointing out, these are tensions that journalists deal with all the time when they're working on stories that try to hold people accountable while still understanding their motives and their psychological backstory. So, to help me unpack all of this, I'm joined by my colleague, Rachel Keith. She has a three-part series on ACEs out this week, which you can find at whqr.org, and we'll have links to that reporting on the show page. Rachel, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And we're here to talk about ACEs. But before we get into that, a lot of this is based on a seminal study from the 1990s that really cemented a lot of this thinking, and it deals with 10 specific questions, and we're going to be referencing these throughout the show. So I want to start by laying out what are the ACEs. The CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, puts it into three buckets, basically abuse, neglect, and household challenges. So under the abuse, you have physical abuse, emotional, and sexual abuse. Then neglect, it's either physical or emotional. And then for household challenges, one of the ACEs is divorce. It's a family member having a mental illness. It's also a parent that has been treated violently by the other. It's also an incarcerated parent or relative. Then the last household challenge is substance abuse. Okay, and one of the people you talked to a lot for this was Javine Skiba. She's the assistant director for New Hanover County's Resiliency Task Force, and this is what their work is all about. So what she's saying here is that a child does not have one of the 10 ACEs, but if there is an adverse community experience or an adverse climate experience, that is still going to add some layer of stress. A lot of students might have that in the home 
everything is okay, but in the environment outside, it's not. And they bring that stress to the classroom. And for the task force, we also make sure we highlight adverse climate experiences in light of Florence. You know, you drive around and you still see tarps on people's homes and um, or atrocious cultural experiences, which is really in my teaching, I try to show folks that's the groundwater that feeds the dysfunction in the community and exacerbates the dysfunction within the home with the original 10 ACEs. And these are all our kids, regardless of whether we have a relationship across zip codes or not. We've been doing a training series on racial equity and trauma. I really do see in the literatures right now where equity-centered, trauma-informed practice is essential. And those atrocious cultural experiences like slavery, genocide, forced family separation, those are things that, although we might not be connected directly, um, still are that water that feeds the dysfunction, right? And so if we don't understand that, then we can't really see those original 10 ACEs clearly. So here you have Javenet talking about, yes, the focus for some of this resiliency task force is those 10 ACEs, but there also are conversations about what can exacerbate those 10 in the community, or we all talked about Hurricane Florence was a climate experience that was adverse for a lot of us as well. So if you've been listening to some of the political debates, especially on the New Hanover County School Board and elsewhere around the state and the country, you will notice some of the things JVNA is talking about overlap with debates we've had about critical race theory and social emotional learning. And there are definitely some overlaps in, you imagine, like a Venn diagram here. Because one of the things we're talking about is, is the negative experience you've had as a child, say you live in a low-income neighborhood that has a higher rate of crime. Well, what's the cause of that? You know, what's the cause of income inequality? What's the cause of crime? What are the root causes of these things? And if you investigate that, you're going to find some historical factors. One of those historical factors would be slavery, uh, Jim Crow laws, the inequitable rollout of drug penalties. And so some of the people I've talked to about this work are a little nervous about talking about this stuff, even though it's really important, because they're afraid they're going to get the same treatment that people teaching history or teaching SEL have also gotten. Right. And this is about contextualizing. And some on the political spectrum don't necessarily want to add that as part of the discussion. Yeah. The other thing I think it's important to point out here is that we're talking about the way children experience the world, but we're also talking about what that looks like as those children grow up Right. And become adults and how it impacts their adult behavior. And you talked to Stephanie Walker and I think she was really candid with you. Yeah. Stephanie Walker is a school board member and she talked about how even if we experience trauma as a child, that still lives within us. And I will say, if you want to go on our website, we have a link to the ACEs quiz. And it's actually by NPR, and it talks to you about what it means to have that ACE score and what it doesn't. But here she is talking about her trauma as a child. When you have trauma as a child, part of that child brain of yours and triggers are real. And, you know, I've been on the school board probably into my third year and I've been triggered quite a lot from things that, you know, have we've had to discuss. So it takes work and it takes 
discussions and, you know, really kind of recognizes that the trauma that happened to you is not your fault. And, you know, you might react, but, you know, you need to learn the ways to cope. And for everyone, that's different. So when I talked to her, and this is in my reporting, she openly admits she has eight of the 10 adverse childhood experiences. But she said that she learned how to cope as a young adult, and she's having a flourishing career, and she has adapted. And she is saying that even if you are a person that has a high A score, that doesn't determine your trajectory necessarily. And that if you do learn how to cope with those ACEs, you're better able to handle stresses out in your life. For example, she's saying on the school board, and I have been to some of those meetings where they are quite contentious and people yell and people are very upset. And if you don't do conflict well, or you basically they have to sit up there and and listen to people yell at them sometimes during the call to the audience. So getting back to this idea about some of the things that feed into ACEs, uh, you talked to uh, Leslie Wilder. She's the licensed clinical therapy supervisor for New Hanover County. She is a supervisor for all the elementary and middle schools. And she was talking about the relationship to some of the, you know, sort of adult level policy issues that we talk a lot about on this show and here at WHQR and ACEs. That's right. And I talked to her about specifically New Hanover County just conducted a community health assessment. And the top three were number one was housing. And then it was accessing health care and then the issue of mental health and substance abuse. So this is what she said when I put that to her. They do trickle down to children, even though, you know, children aren't exactly looking for safe and affordable housing. Their families are. And a lot of families can't afford to live independently. So sometimes children are put in harmful situations because parents can't afford anything more. So homelessness can be one of those issues that that would come up in an ACE score. Obviously, we talked about mental health and substance abuse do as well. So these things, if kids are not taken care of or they're exposed to this through their parents or their guardians, there's going to have to be something to reconcile that so that they can grow into adaptive, healthy adults. Yeah. So we'll touch more later about some of the ways in which ACEs are factored in when we're talking about education, especially early childhood education. But it also factors in when people are adults and sometimes when they make bad decisions that land them and entangle them in the criminal justice system. That's right. And we're going to hear first from District Attorney Ben David. He also co-chairs Chief Justice Paul Newby's task force on ACEs informed courts. So there is a unified effort in this state to make sure that courts are trauma informed. And this is what Ben David said about that. That means we shouldn't be convicting at all costs. We should be doing justice. And if justice means uplifting people who are poor and oppressed and living in adverse community environments like we have here in the Port City, that we should advocate for better schools, better neighborhoods, better jobs for the families who are trying to raise those children. And if it's about making sure that kids who have experienced trauma get that treatment and care that they need instead of turning to bad substances or bad relationships. And he said they're to to numb their pain, essentially, even problems that they carried over from childhood. And what Ben David is saying references what Javen A. Skiba said is that Some of this stuff is in the groundwater that can make the 10 worse if there's not something to 
confront or to cope with those issues that happened to you as a child, or maybe you are still a child. And also, what I came across in my reporting is this treatment issue. Leslie Wilder, who you just heard from, I mean, there is a waiting list for some of these counselors at some of the schools. There are issues in the court system getting defendants support for them and their families. I mean, are the resources there to help people become better adults, to become better citizens. Yeah. And I think one of the criticisms that, you know, a trauma-informed or an ACEs-informed court is going to face is people who basically feel like this is being soft on crime and they're mollycoddling people or that they are actually incentivizing bad behavior, in some cases, violent behavior. And I think it's worth pointing out that I, as a, as a crime reporter, have watched Ben David put people away for a long, long time, and he's been pilloried from both sides. I've heard very strong criticism from the right that he cuts too many deals. He, he lets too many plea bargains go through, repeat drug traffickers that are just, yes, he is hitting them with a million dollar bond, but then they're serving two years and they're right back on the streets. And I've also heard him pilloried from the left about, you know, here is a person who puts a lot of black and brown people in prison. Sometimes there are very long jail times, although that is controlled by the state's structured sentencing. Still, the justice system has to really thread the needle here. And one of the things David told you, and I've heard him say it elsewhere, is that he is really acting on behalf of the community. And his job is to, yes, criminal justice system punishes people for wrongdoing. It tries to discourage other people from doing those things. It tries to rehabilitate people. I have serious questions about that part about it. (laughs) But at the end of the day, one of its main goals is to minimize the harm to the community. And so Ben David's point is, what is the effectiveness of a system that puts people in prison, they come out, they reoffend, the total number of crimes, the total amount of harm done to the community is much greater than if you stop, take a breath, look at someone during their first appearance at court, their first serious misstep and say, okay, are there mitigating factors here? Could you go to treatment? Could you, do you need mental health help? Are there other ways we could do this? Maybe you still need to go to prison for a couple of years because you have broken the law, but is there a way where the end result here is less harm to the community? And I don't think that you'll ever make anyone happy as the criminal justice system. But I think that's the line they're trying to walk. Right. And there is the fact. And when I talked to Ben David, he cited that 98 percent of people are going to get out one day. So what his point of view is that we need to intervene to try to get people support because they're going to be back out in the community. So who do we want to put back out there? And he said right now, this recidivism rates are two out of three reoffend. So basically, his point of view is that we need to intervene again to make those statistics less severe and that people can move on after they've made a serious mistake. And we're going to switch to him talking about this issue that we're not convicting at all costs. And when he can do it, he wants to try to get people to drug treatment court or veterans treatment courts that could help with the rehabilitation of the person rather than the punishment. The punishment, like we talked about, is there, but here he is talking about what it can do. It'll be a mom with two kids at a gas station who says, you might not remember me, but I broke into three different cars and I had a terrible drug addiction and you sent me to drug treatment court. I've been clean for seven years and I want you to meet my kids. That's a great moment. So, I mean, that's that's the best possible outcome is where the justice system intervenes, punishes, rehabilitates. Again, you're never going to find a system that's going to make everyone happy, but that is the the ethos behind this. You also talked to Judge Jay Corpening. Tell me a little bit about that. 
Yes, he is the chief district court judge for New Hanover and Pender counties. He was basically piggybacking off of what Ben David said, and I did interview them together. And he is talking about this system that they're trying to do across the state, the ACEs Informed Courts, where they are trying to address people's trauma. They're trying to not isolate and punish, but try to, again, rehabilitate and allow them to rejoin society, to rejoin their families if they can. And we are uh, excited about the opportunities that this task force brings, where at the senior levels of our court system, we're getting advocacy like we never have before to push things that help families, whether it's one of our recovery courts, whether it's expanding family court and being more responsive to folks who are going through a divorce because being more responsive to that family helps those children, or whether it's uh, building out a more robust child welfare system where we pay better attention at the early stages of a proceeding involving a baby through what, what's being piloted as safe baby courts instead of just business as usual. And the business as usual, what he's referring to is, okay, you did something wrong, you're going to jail, goodbye. But this is more of, okay, you did something wrong, you're going to be punished, but there is going to be a layer of support. Again, he said putting families first. And so what is better for the child? Yeah. And I'll say this for the last time. Yes, I know that there are people who think about the criminal justice system strictly in terms of its punitive elements. And I think of, for example, programs that allow uh, recent mothers who are near the end of their prison terms to be with their, their newborn child in prisons. And I've certainly heard critiques of this saying, oh my God, it, it, that's not punishment at all. You're incentivizing bad behavior, rewarding them. You're giving them a roof over their head and food. And it's I can understand where people are coming from when they have been the victim of violent crime in particular, and there is a natural instinct to want to have that retaliatory effort. But you also got to think about that kid. The kid didn't do anything wrong. And is it worth the punitive satisfaction of saying, yes, we punished you appropriately, but at the expense of a child whose life is now definitely disordered. So I think that's kind of where some of the debate is, is coming from. But th- that big picture is where, is where these guys doing the resiliency work are coming from. Yeah. And I mean, you see the thread through a lot of this is addressing the issue of poverty, because that causes a whole host of problems. So you have Jay Corpening saying, look at the response to these communities who need support so that these children can grow up to be healthy adults. And that when we have these discussions can be difficult. Who we'll hear from now is Bo Dean. He co-chairs the New Hanover County Resiliency Task Force, and he also works for the county as a senior human resources analyst. And he also works closely with Judge Corpening and Ben David on society being more ACEs informed. And that was one thing Judge Corpening really paid attention to was, why am I seeing you in here over and over again? And what's going on? Well, if I'm going back to the same house in the same neighborhood with this, and it's like when you get sober, they always say, get away from people, places, and things. Because what influences you the most is what's in front of you. And so how are things going to change in trajectory if when you go back after you've been adjudicated or if you go back and you've gotten some help or something, this, it's the same thing, right? So we got to talk about it at a community level. And uh, I've had many conversations with Bo about this, and he does walk the talk. But that, that is the basic idea is about thinking about people and their trajectory through life. And I think the, the work addresses so many different aspects of society 
with the same philosophy, whether that's dysfunction in the classroom or drug addiction or criminal behavior. And as we'll hear later in the show, it also just applies to your everyday life. So put a pin in that because if you are lucky enough to have none of those issues that I just listed and you're just a regular person, this stuff still applies to you. But let's close out this section by talking about something that Ben David told you. And I think we should just have a quick trigger warning here that he, he does mention sexual assault here. Yes. And he was talking about, you know, the victims of crime. And he talked about how trauma works on the brain, essentially. And so he did have someone that was a rape survivor and how she remembered her trauma was very difficult. She put it like this. She said, imagine a puzzle that has a beautiful picture. It's your life. And then you throw it up in the air and it crashes to the floor. And now you're looking at at the broken pieces. It's like, that's what my life was like. And to try to put that back together, you access it in different parts of your brain. That trauma that you now have to tell officers and first responders and people doing these rape evaluations and it's 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 fragments and so people think that you're holding back on details or that you're lying and then three years later you'll have a flashback and you'll recall something and it's literally in a different part of your brain and now you can access it but then you're dealing with a whole other bit of trauma when you realize there's a whole other thing that i didn't even realize it happened that now i know did So one of the seminal books that people read about trauma is The Body Keeps the Score by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. And basically what he says is that's what happens with your brain when you have a traumatic event is that your systems in your brain that access chronological thinking and language, they basically shut down. And so it makes sense that trauma victims or people who have experienced trauma have a really hard time retelling what happened to them and what they can remember are some images, some smells, something, a sensation in their body. Because basically what happens is your brain, your prefrontal cortex shuts down and your brain stem and your amygdala that is in charge of your fight, flight, or freeze response takes over. So again, you don't have access to that prefrontal cortex to kind of make sense of what's happening to you because you need those natural fight systems to take over when you're in real trouble. And if someone heard this and they were, uh, you know, a, a defense attorney, and we've seen this play out in the public and with national events that, oh, you can't remember, then it probably didn't happen. But it looks like the brain science is on the side of this is not a logical remembrance of the trauma that happened to you. Yeah, I think that's a really important part. And I hope this resonates in the world of crime reporting and fans of true crime is that this approach, yes, it is more compassionate for the offenders. It is trying to understand where they came from and why they did what they did. But that doesn't exclude the victims. It is also trying to be more understanding of them and their experience and understanding why, why people come forward with testimony years later. So I think there's a lot of different aspects of our life, like I said, that this work gets into. All right, so we've got to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the oxygen mask cliche. You've probably heard it, but we're going to unpack it. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman here with my colleague Rachel Keith, and we're talking about ACEs. On this segment, we're going to talk about the oxygen mask. If you've ever been on a flight, or seen a movie about a flight, or talked to a person who's been on a flight, you've heard this cliche. 
and that is you have to put on your own oxygen mask before you help anyone else with theirs. Now, Rachel, why are we talking about this? Why do we say this? Because you have to be in this work, in this ACEs work, you have to be coping with your own issues and making sure that you're not doing maladaptive behaviors. And once and again, we are human. We all have a nervous system. So threats, real or perceived, are going to knock us out of what we call our resilience zone which means we can get bumped up into anger or down into depression. But if we can handle our emotions and we can cope with the world, then we can help other people. But we can't help other people unless we are in a good place. And so I talked to Tina Pearson. Again, she's the director of New Hanover County's Resiliency Task Force. And in this context, I was asking her about teachers and how difficult their jobs have become. Recent climate surveys have shown that they're starting to increasingly deal with more behaviors than they they have in the past. So teachers and people who deal with difficult people who are not engaging in the best behaviors, you're also going to potentially get upset too. And your decision-making skills are being made by your amygdala, which is managing fight, flight, or freeze you're probably not going to make the best decision. You may say something you want to take back. You may use a tone of voice that's louder or more harsh. And we know that that happens to everybody. And so part of that culture is that grace Mm -hmm. and understanding. The fact of the matter is we are human and it does not matter how wide our resilience zone is or how calm we can be. There is always going to be the day or a circumstance or moment where you are going to either get bumped into agitation or bumped down into sadness. So there she is talking about, it's hard when we have to face difficult people in our lives that sometimes we're not going to handle it the best. But the more that you can, we're going to talk about these coping skills in a minute, the more that you can do that, the better that you're going to be able to go through the world. But that is about being self-aware and owning that you do have a nervous system that can get triggered sometimes with in difficult situations. And that's about biology. It's not, it's about a stimulus happens, it goes through your brainstem, your amygdala, and then your prefrontal cortex says, okay, all right, I'm, I'm taking this in and let's do it a different route. But sometimes that brainstem and the amygdala is just going to take over. But the more awareness you have, the better that you can control some of your response. And what she's saying here is about being in a trauma-informed culture is about forgiveness and grace when we have those moments where our biology takes over. So this is what she's saying, too, about giving grace to other people. Oh, what I would give to go back and have a culture around these resiliency skills that I could have looked at somebody in my workplace and been able to say and them hear me, I'm getting activated right now. Can we just take a time out? I'm going to get reset and we're going to come back and then say, oh, my goodness. Oh, I understand. Do what you need to do. I'll be right here when you get back or let's regroup and there be no judgment. So I want to talk about the elephant in the room for a minute. Sure. Uh, Snowflakes. (laughs) Yeah. So if you're listening to this program, you're probably thinking you're hearing terms like triggering and people being very sensitive and needing a timeout. And it is easy to make fun of that stuff. It sounds actually very childish because it's used a lot in early education. So it has to work for kids. I want to say two things about this. One, we're talking about like 
pretty well-researched scientific evidence. You know, we're talking about neurochemistry. We're talking about biological factors. Anyone who's ever been in a really serious fight or flight situation, you know that is real. Yeah. <laughs> it takes over your brain. You go from having an iPhone 14 to a Nokia brick, <laughs> like in a second. It is your cognitive powers are immediately reduced. And so getting out of that moment is really important. And if you think about all the places that could take effect, I mean, Yes, a teacher in a classroom, a police officer in a difficult situation, a social worker. Uh, we joked about this off mics, but a journalist in a contentious interview. Right. You know, uh, or a politician being hectored by a contentious journalist. And we've seen politicians yell at people. So this is not above anyone to kind of lose their cool. Essentially, hey, you know what? A mature person would regroup and then have a conversation and not just lash out. I mean, we see adults lash out a lot as well. And I think, so that leads me to my other point is is one is that, yes, there's some real science under this and it's applicable in a lot of places. The other thing is that it's not just about individuals. Interesting things happen when you put people in groups because we are social animals. We We might be the most social animals, not always for the best, right? Right. So, and there's some biology about how this works. Yes, we have these things called mirror neurons. And Amy Reed is a community trainer specializing in the community resilience model. And she also teaches mental health first aid for Coastal Horizons. And she talks about these mirror neurons that we have in our bodies. It helps us understand vicarious trauma, secondary trauma, because if we're hearing that all day, our body can begin to respond as if it were happening to us. Even though we didn't experience what um, a student told us earlier that day or a client said in a session, we didn't experience it, but we can respond biologically. But that also, I hope, begins to take some of that pressure off. You know, like, again, if I was a better teacher, I'd be able to leave work at work and not carry it home. If I was a better therapist, I wouldn't get emotionally involved in the, you know. No, it's not that. It's not because you're not good enough or you're not strong enough or you're not smart enough. It is because our body actually does this. And so, again, this is another time when using some of these skills to reset can help us not carry as much of that. So she's talking about not repressing what wells up in us. But if you're a mature adult and you're self-aware, you will employ some strategies to soften that original reaction. Yeah. And she's also touching on this idea that, again, the classroom is a great place to think about this, is that there are so many factors going on here. And by factors, I mean human beings. Yes. And so you've got a teacher who has their own, they're bringing whatever they're bringing to the classroom, their own personal life, maybe their own ACE score, maybe not, doesn't doesn't matter. It's They have their own neurological setup that yes. they're bringing into the classroom. And then you've got each individual kid is dealing with whatever they're dealing with in the home life. But there's this cumulative effect where in a tense classroom, right, that can basically compound itself, right, where the issues of one person or a few people can become everyone's issues. And it's important to acknowledge that. And it's also important for not to shame people for that, because that's biology. That is your brain doing what it has evolved to do. Right. And what Tina said earlier, Tina Pearson, she was saying, you know, sometimes you have to, when you realize you're getting flustered with something, you need to remove yourself. But, you know, sometimes teachers can't always do that. And they do have to respond to students that are 
doing a behavior that is not appropriate for the classroom. So the um, Resiliency Task Force is hoping that community support, that teachers don't feel alone trying to handle adverse behaviors that are showing up in the classroom. Because if you do address maladaptive behaviors or trauma, that takes a long time and it takes commitment as well. So if we go to Amy, when we're talking about from Coastal Horizons, coping mechanism. She talked about a training she did with a lawyer. And this lawyer sat through her training and she taught him some coping mechanisms. I think the one that resonated with him was, you know, looking at a picture on his phone that would make him smile when he was starting to get really upset about a case or something that's not going his way. And just a simple redirect out of that frenzy being upset with something really helped him. And this is how she's retelling what he said to her. What I say needs to be right. But sometimes I get so emotionally engaged in what's happening. I respond from that emotional place. And he's like, I said, I can't wait to use some of these things. And I was like, that's it. Like, that is it. It's not woo woo. It's not, it's not the woo. I'm not talking about the woo. I'm just talking about the biology. <laughs> So there we have it again. We all have these biological responses, and some of us are better than others interrupting that train of sadness or loneliness or anger. But that coping mechanism, that intermediary skill that is going to get you out of that situation is really helpful, and it does respond to how humans are made. Yeah, and I think that's the big takeaway for me is that there is a toolkit of ways to get yourself out of those fight or flight moments when your amygdala has hijacked your more sensible frontal cortex. And it is easy to make fun of them, but it's also easy to see how much damage can be done if you don't get out of that moment. Imagine if a cop loses their cool. Imagine if a teacher loses their cool. Imagine if, I don't know, the air traffic controller loses their cool. There are people that you really want to stay calm, cool, and collected, and it's important to sort of understand this. So you can apply this stuff to almost any social setting. I think it's particularly instructive when we're talking about the classroom because we are talking about teachers who have had more and more stacked on their plate. We are asking more and more of them, and the classrooms are becoming a more psychologically stressful place to be. So I I think that's where this work really, really shines. Right. And I did speak to someone from the school district. Her name is Tanya Shields jordan She supervises elementary school counselors for the school district in New Hanover. And she's talking about healthy coping mechanisms for students, for adults. I mean, it's the things that we kind of know, but it's hard to commit to those when you're in an agitated state. Letting them know it's important to determine their healthy coping mechanism, whatever that is for them, whether it's the music, whether it's the journaling, whether it's taking a walk in nature, anything that we do normally when we've had a bad day, it's more important to be intentional about doing it when we've had something traumatic to happen, like the loss of someone we love or a community violence event. So here she's talking about, I mean, there are various degrees of stressors, as we know. Um, You could get into a fight with your friend, um, a disagreement, Or like we've experienced in our community in the Port City, we do have gun violence as well. So that is a more serious issue. That's a more systemic issue. But that still means that you have to reconcile what happened to you. We all know that exercise increases endorphins and is an interrupter to stressful situations as well. 
That's why I go for a run in the morning before I respond to emails from PIOs. Yes, <laughs> I run as well and swim, sometimes surf. Depending on the level of stress. <laughs> you got to find your thing to help you get through that day. Okay, well, we've got to take a break. And I think we've done a good job covering how people take care of their own stress level, how they put their own oxygen mask on. But when we come back, we're going to talk about, okay, your oxygen mask is on. What comes next? You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schockman here with my colleague Rachel Keith, and we're talking about ACEs. Now, we've talked about what ACEs are and how they help us explore different approaches to education and criminal justice and the importance of putting on your own oxygen mask first. But now I want to talk about what do you do once you understand this stuff? And you're kind of in a centered place and you want to help someone. That's right. And we're going to start with Bo Dean. Again, he co-chairs the Resiliency Task Force. He also works in human resources for the county. He leads a lot of these trainings and he's talking with building people up because usually there's something in their ego or something that they're dealing with that really hurts them, but they want to be better. So this is how he describes talking with people and trying to build them up. So for me, if the shame story had anything to do with might not being good enough, I might say to somebody, just tell me I'm good enough. When you're co-regulated and you're in that situation, you're doing it with somebody and you ask them to repeat back to you. So you say, Rachel, you are good enough, right? You do it three times. And each time you're watching and identifying the body of the person that you're with to see if there's any shifts going on. I guarantee you that I've never done this with anybody when they've told me what they wanted to hear that by the third time, either they have relaxed more and feel better or they're crying. I'm usually crying. You have here, we all have our vulnerable moments. We have our weaknesses around something particular, maybe in our childhood, and we just need reassurance. I mean, this is about people who you care about in the community saying, hey, you can do this, or you're good enough, or something positive to keep you going, even through the adversity. And it's about being seen. And I know that phrase is thrown around a lot. But Bo Dean is talking about really engaging with people and really connecting because it matters. It's basically saying that you matter. And sometimes people, when they feel isolated or depressed, they feel like they don't. Yeah. There's another aspect of this when it comes to dealing with other people. And this is going to sound cheesy, but be nice to people. And that's what we're about to get into. And this is a big thing about this trauma-informed resiliency work is that you can be the positive adult or the positive person in someone's life, especially in a child, because we know that their brains are developing. They need that positive support. And here's Tanya Jordan again. She works for the school district. And like you said, Ben, it's about being nice and understanding people and where they're coming from. My mother always told us, you know, when you go to the store and you have the clerk that's not very nice or kind of maybe a little short or snappy, we never know what that person has gone through before they got to work that day. We never know if they have a family member that's ill or they're dealing with some financial struggles or maybe even domestic violence at home or whatever. We don't know the situation. We don't know people's truth. But it's so important to respond to everyone kindly because we don't know. And our kind words may make a difference for someone. 
And you have Tanya there talking about ACEs, essentially, or and basically they're going through something really tough that has real impacts on their health. And that was in my first story. I mean, it's it's serious repercussions. But if you can be that positive person in someone's life or just saying thank you or just turning the, the page for that person is what they're saying is is important for our culture. Yeah, and I can say I've had conversations with people in almost every field where this would be applicable. And I think the, the most profound have been discussions with people in law enforcement. When people who have been in law enforcement for a long time talk about how they de-escalate situations that could otherwise end with grievous bodily harm or fatalities, usually the way they describe it is trying to at least acknowledge that they don't know where that other person is coming from and clearing out their their preconceived notions and just saying, I have no idea what kind of day this guy had. This could be a totally normal person who has just gotten a spam phone call for the last time, you know, or had a bad fight with their partner in the morning or whose kids are pushing them. And so, again, it sounds super simplistic, but that idea of trying to think about the other person as a person and saying, like, okay, they're probably dealing with something, too. And that's the grace and compassion for people who who are not doing well. Their biological response has been activated and you need to try and support them the best you can. And then this is Clifford Barnett. He is a city councilman. He also co-chairs the Resiliency Task Force with Bodine. And he talks about, I heard this over and over again, and we'll talk about this at the end of the show, that one positive adult in a kid's life can make such a difference. And he told me this anecdote that I thought was really special and kind of highlighted what that means. Smiling at kids, encouraging kids, recognizing, man, look how you tied that shoe. What does that cost me? Nothing. I had a little girl come visit me from the church I used to pastor in Virginia, and her name is Mackenzie. And when Mackenzie came to visit me, um, when she got out of the car, I ran to her, you know, just like, I buzzed And she said, you ran to me. She started crying. You ran to me. And I went, wow. So what does it cost me? Kids want to be recognized. They want to be loved. They want to know that they're loved. And again, like I said from the very beginning, it just takes one caring adult, just one. So I think everyone can remember at least one person in their life, you know, the teacher, their parent, uh, whoever it was, right, who, you know, you still think about today who had that kind of impact on you. It probably seemed pretty important to you at the time, but what Clifford Barnett is saying, it, it cost him nothing. It, was, it wasn't unimportant, but it was a small gesture. One of the things we talk about when we talk about ACEs is it's these extra efforts that people make that can help people dig out of psychological trauma that they're dealing with. They're protective factors. They are protective factors, but they're not, they're not free. And, and that's, I think, one of the, maybe not a controversy, but one of the issues with trauma-informed programs and, and ACEs-based programs in schools and courts is that this is an investment, right? Yeah, it's a huge investment. And that resource piece, the human resource, has to be there. Because when we talked about in our second segment, the resources have to be there for those who support these people. Their oxygen mask has to be on first. And if it's not on, then how can they help other people? And they can't do it alone. Being in this trauma-informed approach that Tina Pearson and Jay Vinay Skiba talk about is that it takes a community. It takes a lot of support. It takes a lot of financial resources to give people who had really maladaptive childhoods to get them out and to better being better adults. Yeah. One of the things we've talked about when we talk about 
the school district is the impact of a really, really good teacher. And a lot of that is people who maybe never even heard about ACEs, but just sort of instinctively got some of this stuff. And man, it's difficult to recruit and retain that. I mean, you're really asking a lot from someone just to do a basic job and then to be an excellent human on top of that is tough. So it is an investment, especially as the discipline becomes more difficult, you're going to have to compensate people more. And that's often a a touchy subject. Yeah. And this is a reality. Follow the school district's budget. The budget negotiations are happening now. And a combined 57 mental health workers or counselors are going to be cut because a federal program is going away. And also the issue with the schools are the kids, the enrollment numbers are not there. From my last count, they were down a thousand students than they thought they had from last year. So that means that they have to cut positions. So this trauma-informed work takes what they say is a village, but it's getting harder and harder to find the support for people to actually be in these schools providing an extra layer of support that they need. And talking about the school district, we touched on this earlier in the show, but I mean, you can see how some of the people doing this work would be concerned because if you're talking about understanding where someone is coming from, that is often going to include issues of class and race. On the most recent episode of the newsroom, we talked about Rachel Freeman Elementary School, and we have heard frustration from some parents who think, why are these black children getting extra resources and extra help and not my kids? These are white parents saying this. And it is often this zero-sum approach to anything like this because, again, we are talking about resources. We're talking about money for counseling or teachers spending more time on one student than another. And so there is a political fraughtness around that. But I think at the end of the day, what we're talking about is situations where we are trying to help the kids who need it get to where they want to go. It's not taking away anything from the other students. Yeah, because the groundwater that feeds the ACEs, the poverty, no job prospects, those are issues that they're up against. And then maybe they have ACEs on top of that. It's tough. Yeah, I mean, again... At the end of the day, if you're going to look at why not every student walks into the class with the same skill set, the same toolkit, and the same quality of life, well, you're going to uncover some nasty realities, and some people don't want to face those. The last thing I want to say about this in terms of maybe debates over this is this something came up in your research, Rachel, and that is that there is some pushback against the idea of maybe officially, formally building in like an ACES score into the way that you're documented in the education system. Basically, this idea that you might stigmatize someone or reduce them to just an ACEs score. Right. And through my reporting, I mean, we have people who work in the school district that say we treat all kids with a trauma-informed approach, but we don't have those ACEs scores. But then watching this specific video that the Resiliency Task Force, when you do one of their trainings, asks you to watch. It's called Resilience, the Biology of Stress and the Science of Hope. So the doctors, medical doctors in there are saying, do these scores so that you can understand where you need to meet kids. But then you have Tanya Jordan and Leslie Wilder saying, sometimes we can't always figure that out. And then we also have Jay Corpening and Ben David that are saying it's really important as well to gather this data. So there is some contention about do we need to have the number or do we not? And also what was interesting in my interviews are that 
Judge Corpening said, hey, I'm a four. Bodine said, I'm a four. Stephanie Walker, I said earlier, is an eight out of 10. I'm openly admitting I have two out of the 10. So it's interesting to see how people feel about revealing their scores and kind of revealing some hardships that they had in their childhood. Okay, so we're just about out of time. So let's recap. What did we learn today? (laughs) Yes, it's big. And I do have these seven takeaways that came from everyone pretty much that I talked to. And the first one is, and this is probably the biggest one, with any maladaptive behavior, you ask what happened to you, not what's wrong with you. Right. And another big takeaway was that trauma and stress live in your body. This is a biological phenomenon. So the intervention has to respect that and work at that level or it's not going to work at all. Right. So Javen A. Skiba said, we all have a nervous system. So we have to honor that. And this is not like Amy Reed said, the woo. Um, It's something that really happens to all of us, not just to one segment of the population. Yeah. Another big takeaway is that people are still accountable for their actions. ACEs aren't destiny, but they're not a get out of jail free card. And this is something we talked about with Dorian Cromartie, who's a volunteer at Rachel Freeman. He told us, you know, understand the children. But don't lower the standard. I think that's a good way of thinking about it. That's right. And that's what we heard from Jay Corpening and Ben David, that they're going to be accountable, but we're going to try to support them. Because, again, we want to not see them back in the court system. So there's a good reason for people being accountable, but not debilitating people so that they can't be rehabilitated. Yeah. And of course, just to reiterate, adversity is not destiny. That's right. And these people I talk to with these higher A scores, people go on to live successful lives if they have these adaptive tools, if they have that person, that one positive adult who can really help them steer the ship of their life, essentially. Yeah. that's And and again, we, we heard that over and over again, is that it doesn't take a lot, but it does take someone. Someone has to be there at the right time with the right kind of support. And that person has to have had put their own oxygen mask on first. And the last thing is, again, you can say this sounds cheesy. I'm a cynical person. I think this sounds cheesy, but it doesn't mean it's not true. And that is, this is about small acts of kindness and giving compassion and grace for people and thinking about, okay, where are they coming from? That's right. Okay. Well, that's about all the time we have for today's show. Rachel Keith, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks also to all of the people who shared their insights and expertise with Rachel Keith. And of course, thanks to our WHQR technical team, Ken Campbell, Jonathan Fernell, and Megan McDevitt. If you missed any part of the show, you can find it at whqr.org or get the show as a podcast pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's show or ideas for a future episode, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schockman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom. Newsroom.